1: It is 1700 hours Central African time on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumele Lezondi coming to you live in Jahan- from Johannesburg in South Africa. It's a 31 meter band if you're in Southern Africa and you can find us on 965kHz over there. You can also stream us at channelafrica.co.za. I'm with Chola Netulo, Amanda Machaka and Neddo Chemane. your top stories. Islamist, Islamic extremist tribal conflict and political instability have come increasingly to define Mali. Renowned Zimbabwean musician Oliver Mduguzi has passed on. In economic news, China writes off Cameroon's 78 million US dollar debt, and in sports, Zimbabwe has provisionally been rewarded the rights to host this year's edition of the Kosafa Men's Cup to be held in May. Joanna Natula has your news.
0: Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. South Africa's opposition, EFF, has called on government to contribute towards the bailout of Zimbabwe to better the country and avoid a flood of Zimbabweans coming into South Africa. This follows last week's violent clampdown on Zimbabwe's protesting against a massive fuel hike. Hundreds of protesters were arrested during the protests in which 12 people were killed. EFF leader Julius Malema says his call is not to aid the ruling ZANU-PF, but rather the country as a
1: whole. South Africa must contribute towards the bailout of Zimbabwe. Because if you don't help Zimbabweans, the border is going to be flooded by them. And anyone who's going to block them from coming into South Africa, we're going to fight with that person. And it must be grant that is dedicated to developmental programs which will help Zimbabwe to stand on its own. A weaker Zimbabwe leads to a weaker SADC region. In 2019, you've got a leader that shut down Internet and shut down social media. It's unacceptable, Munangawa must know that. We're not going to support the tyranny, the brutalization of our people.
0: The Sudanese Engineers Federation has reportedly staged staged a sit-in protest in a suburb of the capital Khartoum on Wednesday. The action was dispersed by security forces. The protesters were holding printouts of the President Omar al-Bashir's face with the word leave. Sit-in protests were also staged in Al-Mazmum in the Sena state. Meanwhile, President al-Bashir is in Qatar to meet with his Qatari emir Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad al-Tani. This is Al-Shab Lurada Alba shear's first visit since protests began in december 2018. Social media is a buzz in Ghana With users demanding the rescue of three young ladies Abducted by a Nigerian in the country's western region The hashtag Bring Back Our Tadi Girls Is currently being used, especially on Twitter To demand that police take necessary action In a case that was reported over a month back All girls were reportedly kidnapped in Takauradi The capital of the oil-producing region Priscilla Mantembea, Ruth Love Kuison And Priscilla Blessing Bentam were all last seen last year. Police reportedly arrested a Nigerian national believed to be behind the incident, but the suspect is said to have escaped from custody. A joint funeral for two of the four young South Africans who drowned in the Portuguese islands of Mozambique last week will be held in Hrubla's dal in, Linden, in the Limpopo province on Sunday. Their bodies were repatriated back, repatriated back to South Africa this morning. MEC for Social Development, Mapula Mokabo pokwane earlier visited the families of those who died and those who survived the tragedy. Chedza
2: Mokwebo reports. Mukaba has promised that counselling and psychological support will be afforded to the survivors of the ordeal. Four people aged between 19 and 27 disappeared while they were swimming on the beach last Monday when they were swept away into the sea by the waves. Their bodies were later recovered on separate days. They were on the Portuguese island to celebrate a birthday of one of the deceased. The funeral of the two of those who died will be held at the Kroblersdal Rugby Stadium on Sunday.
0: And finally, in news just in, legendary Zimbabwean jazz musician Oliva Mtukuzi has passed away at the age of 66. Reports suggest he passed away at a hospital in Harare in Zimbabwe. No details have yet been released and the family is expected to release a statement later today. Tributes are already flooding in on social media. Executive producer of South Africa's Joy of Jazz Festival and music producer Peter Clady says his death is a great loss to the industry.
3: I phoned Zimbabwe to speak to Walter Wanyanya who is Oliver's manager and he confirmed that he passed on this morning. It's a sad thing because I, I was at your studios talking about Braju one year later and Braju and Oliver were very, very close friends. So it's a terrible thing. I've never heard, I don't know what's happening to this year. This gentle giant died but he left a legacy. I think The young Africans must continue singing songs. Africans need to sing those songs.
0: For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tudor. This is Africa Digest.
1: 1706 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective. Now, Islamist extremism, a tribal conflicts, and political instability have come to increasingly define Mali. This is a country once famed for its vibrant culture, religious diversity, and ancient civilization. What is less frequently discussed is how climate change is a major driving force behind the myriad of problems their country now faces. Life in the Sahel, a region that covers the gateways into the great expanses of the Sahara, has always rested upon a fine balance but increasingly intense droughts and floods and exacerbating the violence and insecurity there. In Mali specifically, rainfall has dropped by 30% over the past 20 years and last year, parts of the country saw their worst floods in half a century. The BBC's chief international correspondent, Lise Doucette, has been to Timbuktu to see how climate change is impacting on daily life.
4: A traditional welcome here at Timbuktu Airport. <laughs> and uh, a picture. Even a picture. Yeah. Malien, the Red Cross of Mali.
1: I'm Peter Maurer, the president of the ICRC, And uh, I think uh, we need to pay much higher attention to the conflict in Mali and and in the Sahel overall because climate change is coming as an additional and complicating factor and is causing humanitarian problems at a big scale.
4: The Grand Mosque of Timbuktu When Islamist groups stormed into this desert city in 2012, they smashed the shrines and destroyed the mosques around it. They tried to destroy the manuscripts, but local people saved many of them. All you can hear today inside this magnificent mud structure is the chirping of the birds. But this speaks so loudly of what Timbuktu used to be, this storied city in the sand in West Africa, a cultural crossroads centuries past, a place of literature, science, arts, and trade. And now, and here outside the mosque, there's two men with their wares on some fabric, selling goods even though there's no one to buy
3: that's for the Gazelle class, the black one is Ebony Wood, and this one the Flame of Peace. this one it is Timbuktu Kiwi
4: so you started here 10 years ago? yes how many tourists used to come?
3: many, many tourists, now nothing just uh, the, the soldier, maybe the soldier.
4: just the soldiers?
3: the soldier, yes
4: Driving through the rutted streets of this desert city, you get glimpses of its storied past. The distinctive Sahelian architecture, the exquisite metalwork. But mostly you see the scenes of of people, Malians, struggling to get by. And we're having to drive quickly because the drivers keep saying it's just not safe for us to linger long anywhere. Here in this sand-swept-walled compound, a thatched hut, a brick home. We meet the head of the household, and he, what a noble figure he strikes with his grey turban, his beard also flecked with grey. And you can see the harshness of life written all over his face. This is Buya al-Baraka. The chickens wandering everywhere, and inside this thatched hut, One of his wives, all the children. Children aren't feeling well. Bonjour. And she shows around. She waves her hand around. They're sleeping on the matting. Oh, the harvest.
5: you lost two children.
4: She shows me a, a little plastic bottle of milk. She said the children have nothing to eat. She's lost two children. The harvest was bad this year. There was no harvest. So there was no food. There was an attack here by the Islamist groups in 2016. That destroyed part of the house. And then she says, the flooding did the rest. Her eyes are just pools of sadness, cursed by both the deepening conflict with the rise of the extremist groups, cursed by the ravages of climate change.
1: That's the BBC's Lise set. Now, the South African National Editors Forum, OSANF, has responded to Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo's lashing of the media following their publicising of testimony that had not been publicly presented before the state capture inquiry. Zondo said that the journalists and editors in question had uh, breached the Commission's regulations. However, OSANF says it was never consulted on these regulations. The media body says when the regulations were first distributed last year, it immediately made contact with the Commission and telephonically outlined their objections. A meeting that was planned for the first day of the inquiry never went ahead, despite Senef representatives availing themselves for the set time. More from Chairperson at Senef, Matlati Matlase.
6: We were actually quite surprised and taken aback because, as we've already outlined, uh, we have been engaging with the Commission of Inquiry around these regulations. Just to add that in November, again, when we made similar comments, we again wrote to the Commission reminding them of the conversation we have had and also the fact that we had actually um, said that they are problematic, these regulations, that we would like to meet with them. And on Monday, I also received a call from somebody from the Commission saying that they will be sending us an email requesting for a meeting. So we were quite surprised because we had preferred our engagement with the Commission mm. because we also understood that they were problematic from the word go and they were going to create this conflict between the media and the Commission.
3: So there was communication with regards to this issue?
6: Yes, there was definitely communication. As I said, in November, again, we wrote to them. This was mm-hmm. followed up from our first attempt before the commission got underway. Uh, because when the regulations were distributed, uh, we then said to them, no, but these are actually problematic.
3: So would you say the publicizing of the evidence ahead of the testimony was in the interest of the public?
6: I think we need to qualify what we're saying, right? First okay. of all, yes, we do believe in it is in the interest of the public. Because, and also, secondly, to say that it is not extraordinary what the media did. Mm. Uh, this is not just the first commission that we are having in South Africa. We have on numerous occasions had uh, legal challenges happening in the court where we have reported on the court documents before there were actually uh, arguments were made before the judges inside the court. And at no point has that ever been seen as undermining any legal process. And that is why we wanted to have a conversation with the commission to understand why it was important for this particular commission to have these extraordinary measures that are threatening to put journalists in jail for doing their work.
3: So, have you reached out to the Commission following the warning which came out yesterday?
6: We have indeed, and we are hoping that they will give us a time uh, and actually give us a hearing. We do understand that there are colleagues in the media space that have decided to take the matter to court. Uh, While we do support uh, that that court action, we opted to rather engage because we believe in the importance of this Commission of Inquiry. And we also believe that in South Africa it is important that we sit around the table and actually engage Mm. before having go to the court to actually have it resolved. And as I said, you know, what we are fearing also is setting a precedent in this regard because, uh, you know, these these uh, regulations were set by this particular commission. What happens when the next time another commission sets conditions that basically make it more impossible for the media to report on a particular commission? Uh, do we then just leave it as... That is what the commission wants. And also, you know, I know that a lot of we have been accused of trying to be above the law. But what we are saying is that, you know, we need to have a sense of engagement. And when things do not seem to go in conflict with the Constitution, we then have the right to actually challenge them. This is not to undermine the commission in any way. We value it's important. And also to add that if you look at a lot of the things that are emerging from that commission, it is because of the media's work. Uh, that we actually mm. have this condition. You can look at somebody like the allegations around Vincent Smith. Those allegations were actually made by uh, journalists last year already. Mm. Uh, this is basically the difference now, of course, is that we have people with sauna to coming forward and actually giving uh, the testimony as they are.
3: So what would you say is the ideal outcome out of this entire situation?
6: You know, we, we would like to understand uh, the Deputy Chief Justice's concern uh, where they're coming from because, for example, we've had instances in the court where the judge would say this part of the testimony can you we'll not publicize it because mm-hmm. there's still an investigation that is underway or that police are about to go and find the suspect or whatever else. And we would respect those kind of conditions. But okay. at the moment, we do not understand uh, where we are uh, undermining uh, the commission and hence we're saying that we would like to meet with the DCJ to have this conversation.
3: Alright, and I did hear you mentioning some of the implications for the media that published the evidence before it was heard. Um, I heard you mentioning something about going to jail. Could you expand on that for us? What are these implications?
6: Yes, um, one of the regulations basically says that if anybody publishes any information without the written consent of the judge, they could actually face a criminal prosecution and that's why we are saying that we find this to be criminalizing journalism because mm. you and I know for any journalist to be a good journalist is about digging. People go and investigate things that are leaked to them and once information is verified and uh, ethical, ethical processes are actually followed we should be able to report on it. And also just to add I mean we know that even with legal cases the commentary that happens in the media and all of that should not have influence in what actually happens in the court of law because in the court of law it is the law that is actually followed.
1: Matlati Matlase is the chairperson of the South African National Editors Forum talking to Samora Mangesi.
3: I, Nelson Honisas of Mandela, do hereby sir to be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. He was not a ruler,
2: like just telling people what to do. He didn't rule us, he let us.
7: His role as president in the process of nation-building was exemplary and wonderful.
4: You could disagree with him, he would disagree with you, you could even be quite testy with each other, and yet it wouldn't affect the overall relationship of your own cooperation or friendship.
8: Nelson Mandela, A giant of two centuries.
0: This is Africa Digest. 17.19
1: Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Now, as Nigeria prepares to hold presidential elections next month, organizers of the Bring Back Our Girls campaign yesterday took to the streets for a silent protest. They say they wanted to remind the government of the missing girls' plight. The girls were abducted from a school in Chibok five years ago. More from one of the Bring Back Our Girls campaign organizers, Edith Yasin.
6: Usually, we march every month, but this particular march was because elections are around the corner on the 16th of February. This year, there's going to be a presidential election along with other elections, and we thought that the issue of our missing Chibok girls has been pushed to the rear. It is not even an issue for this, the elections this time around. In difference to 2014, 2015, it was really a big issue and the current party in power ruled on the issue to get into power. So it was time to remind them that the elections are coming and no longer are the Chibok girls an issue. And we wanted them to remember that 112 Chibok girls are still missing. Added to that, Leah Sharibu is missing. Leah Sharibu was taken in Dapchi. The other students were released, but Leah Sharibu was held back. Also in one, Alison Gada was taken along with Saifera Ahmed, and Hawali man. This war and Hawa man have so far, from all indications, been executed by Boko Haram. But Ali Ngada is still alive and so we're saying all of these should be part of the issues going forward.
0: And just tell us more about the campaign itself. Is the work still continuing? I know you've just alluded to the fact that yesterday's march was also a reminder to the government that the elections are coming, but are uh, efforts to relocate and find the goals continuing? The campaign has been on. We, we, we have a sit-out
6: every day. So we've been sitting out now for 1,730 days. That's close to five years. Our girls have been missing one thousand seven hundred and forty five days. We started the, we started our campaign fifteen days, exactly fifteen days after the the our daughters were taken. So yes, we've been campaigning. We, we have a sit out every day. We sit for one hour every day in Abuja. Lagos has a sit out every Saturday in two places in Lagos. So yes, and even social media we still posting. When we have a sit out we post So yes, the campaign is still on. We never stopped campaigning.
0: And what has been the response from the government? What are they saying? Are they continuing to search for the girls from their side? Well, we have no idea. That's why our protest
6: yesterday was also a silent protest. We're also telling the government that they've been silent for too long. So we were silent yesterday. We had no banners. We had just the message saying it is the express responsibility of government to secure lives and property. That was our only message. We did not chant. We did not say anything. We marched silently to the gate of the villa. And at the gate of the villa, we had no statement except the list of the missing, of the names of the missing, our still missing daughters, our still missing Chibok girls, 112 of them. And then we added the names of Leah Sharibu and Alison Garda.
0: Now, as organizers of the Bring Back Our Girls campaign, what is your message to the government as the country prepares to hold elections next month? Well,
6: we, we have been consistently telling the government that they promised that immediately they got into power, the insurgency would come to an end within a year. They promised that the war on Boko Haram will not have been said to have ended until all the Chibok girls are back or accounted for, that only they have watched that she happened. Under their watch, Leah Shakir is still missing. Under their watch, four Christmases that our Chiba girls have, have been under this government. And they have been very loudly silent about 112 still missing Chiba girls. The Chiba girls spent one Christmas under the last government, but under this government, they spent four Christmases a week. On the 14th of April, 2019, the Chiba girls would have been gone for five years.
1: There is one of the Brinkway Girls campaigners, Edith Yassin, on the line with Ntlantla Matlangu there. Now, we've all grown up with the same social condition. Menstruation is a taboo topic. A new global survey by the brand Libres, which is an international brand of uh, feminine hygiene products owned by Acety, states that nearly half of women in the survey feel there is still major stigma attached to menstruation. Women and girls still feel self-conscious and ashamed of menstruation, even to the point of feeling uncomfortable when purchasing a tampons or pads. More from Libresse brand manager Mpo Nojiwa.
6: Unfortunately, there's a lot of stigma and myths that surround menstruation, I think mainly because of information. And I suppose it's the age-old tradition that periods are not to be spoken about, they are disgusting, and um, nobody should see them. And basically because these are conversations we don't have in our homes, then it spills over to work. To school and the like.
5: I think that this problem stems from childhood. What do you think parents should change when it comes to the talk about menstruation?
6: I think one of the biggest mistakes that parents do is that they number one hope it never happens to their children even though they know that it's a part of life and when they actually do begin the period then they don't know how to approach it and I think Parents need to inform themselves and understand what it is that happens biologically and also be comfortable to speak about it themselves. And then they need to start having these conversations at home from a very young age. In schools and otherwise, we found out girls start menstruating as early as nine years old. And there are many, many reasons why that is compared to maybe in the olden days. It could possibly be the food that we eat that is injected with hormones. But these are discussions you should be having with your girl as early as nine years old and giving them information that is age appropriate. Because what we found is that they find the information on the internet. I mean, we live in a digital age. And second of all, it perpetuates a lot of myths that are not true, but I think The biggest problem is that as we grow older and we're unable to speak about periods and anything surrounding menstruation, your vagina and your cervix, is that when we do come across problems as we grow older, we are not able to go and seek medical help and when we do seek medical help is generally when it's too far gone and then when we do find ourselves in the room of gynecologists or nurses, we are unable to articulate what our problems are. I think we need to allow it to be something that we converse about freely. We need not only tell our girls who will experience periods, but it's something that we need to discuss. With boys so that they understand what happens to a woman during that time and that they also need to be sensitive with girls we are finding a lot more homes that are run by dads and they also need to be comfortable to talk to their girls and be able to buy them products easily and not shy away from it
5: now a lot of african countries and cultures have an idea that if a woman is on the cycle then The woman is spiritually dirty and physically dirty, so the woman is not supposed to cook or clean or touch anything. If society takes a step to change this narrative, what would you suggest that we should do to tackle this problem? There is a lot of things that
6: we can do. I think first and foremost as people who are in the media, whether we use social media or we use mass media, these are conversations that need to start opening up. We need to be able to see periods and talk about periods freely. And I think that, number one, will change the narrative. Also, if we start having these conversations at home and debunking these kind of myths, and I think going forward, we will be able to change this narrative more than anything to talk about fact, Exactly what is it that happens?
5: But even if I understand the menstrual cycle as a whole, as a woman, I feel uncomfortable with the scent, hygiene and staining myself at the workplace. Now, how do I then tackle the mental struggle when I'm on my cycle?
6: First and foremost, as women, we need to make sure that the product that we use is protecting us. And I think also we need to teach girls about hygiene and women in general around periods and how often you need to change your periods. Just because you're having your period, it doesn't mean that you cannot continue to live life as is.
5: If there is a support program, what are the support programs Libres as a company might have for the social problem? We
6: do offer a lot of information around period, around understanding what is going on, about hygiene. We have a lot of examples of women who have not let their parents hold them back. So what we do is that we run a school program where we teach girls as young as grade four. It's about hygiene around periods because really we do believe that we need to be part of our community in changing the narrative. And as we speak to the girls, we make sure that we give them takeaways in terms of literature to share with their family members.
5: Now for our last question, how can the listeners, especially the youth, be in touch with Libres for this support program per se?
6: Young people can follow us on Facebook, we are SA. we also are present on Twitter at SA, and they can look us up on our website which is www.libres.co.za and we do run a lot of campaigns, one which we are running at the moment called Blood Normal which they can find on social media talking basically about debunking business and making periods a normal part of our lives and a normal part of our conversations.
1: That is Mpo Nojiwa, the Libres brand manager on the line with Numbuise Lo Dango. 17.30 Central African Time. Chuala Netulo has your news headlines.
0: Thank you, Spumelele. making headlines. South Africa's opposition, EFF, has called on government to contribute towards the bailout of Zimbabwe to better the country and to avoid a flood of Zimbabwe's coming into South Africa. Silent Zimbabwe legendary jazz musician Oliver Mutuguzi has passed away at the age of 66. And finally, the Sudanese Engineers' Federation has reportedly staged a sit-in protest in a suburb of the capital Khartoum. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tula. <laughs>
8: Across the globe, every second there's always a breaking story.
5: for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa.
0: Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia.
8: Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango,
1: Channel Africa Blantyre.
3: Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi.
1: From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa.
2: In
8: Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa.
1: It is 1731 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest with Ms. Pumelele Zondi on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now South Africa is this week hosting its fifth annual Women in Tourism Conference. The meeting seeks to accelerate the economic empowerment and progression of women in the sector. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by Melin Broderick, Chief Director of Enterprise Development and Transformation at the Department of Tourism in South Africa. Hello, and thank you very much for joining us.
9: Hello from and, uh, and to and listeners.
1: Uh, what's happening at this meeting?
9: Um, well, we're in the, every year. The Women in Tourism Program hosts an annual conference where we bring together our Women in Tourism chapters. We have nine chapters across the country um, to drive transformation, uh, particularly uh, with respect to advancing the cause of women in our sector. And we are currently in Rustenburg this year.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And tell us about the role of the women that you're talking about in the sector that you're in.
9: Well, um, as you know, the President has declared tourism as one of the key sectors for driving growth and development and job creation in our country. Um, so we um, sought to assist women in this regard because the sector has a serious transformation challenge. Women make up the majority of employees in the sector, uh, but unfortunately when it comes to ownership and executive management positions, uh, we are not doing as well as our B charter requires us to do. So the, the Women in Tourism program serves as a vehicle to drive transformation specifically in uh, capacity building, access, access to funding um, and improving on soft skills for women, you know, work-life balance, networking, etc.
1: Mm, um, why is that? Why are women not um, part owners or owners um, of stakes in the tourism sector?
9: I think it's a, it's a historical problem. The owners of, of, of uh, businesses are traditionally, if you look at the B&B sector, there is a, a plethora of women. The majority of owners there, however, are white. Um, but in the larger businesses, such as lodges, uh, you know, the large uh, destination management companies or tour companies, uh, they are traditionally uh, are white-owned. Um, and for us to, to change that, uh, we have to, you know, do some resort to pretty much drastic measures to to make sure that we drive that transformation. So it's an historical problem, uh, but we are making headway.
1: Um, And are there solutions coming out of your meeting?
9: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, We have various what we call tourism incentive programs, which uh, give women access to trade shows across the globe. Um, I'm on my way now uh, to the UNWTO, where our Women in Tourism program has been flagged as one of the leading programs on the continent. So I'm going to present that there, uh, which means we have recognition at that level. Um, also, our executive development program for women, we recognized or that the industry told us there were not women able to step into board or executive roles. So we have partnered with UNISA and uh, in the third year of doing the executive development program. Um, and uh, every year we, we started with 20, but now we're on 40. And the vast majority of those women, upon completion, uh, into executive positions. For example, one of our, our graduates has been appointed as uh, head of operations for a new hotel, a Hilton hotel in Dubai. Uh, so it is uh, changing. Uh, we still have a way to go, but we believe we're making headway, particularly through our chapters, which is a joint initiative between the private sector and government.
1: All right, sure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV Audio bouquet. The 1700 Hours Show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700 Hours Central African Time Show. The 1900 Hours Central African Time Program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. It is 1737 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. In the background there you are listening to a live rendition of Neria by the late legend Oliver Mduguti. We learned of his passing this afternoon. Now the state owned Herald newspaper first said that he was 66 when he passed away. Mduguti died after a long diabetes battle. He was pronounced dead at the Avenue's clinic located in the capital, Harare. He was a big deal, especially with his guitar. One of his high-profile performances last year was during the burial of former Prime Minister, veteran opposition leader Morgan Jangurai. Now, a journalist who is with This Day newspaper in Harare in Zimbabwe, Dabiwa, Dabiwa Zivira, joins me on the line now. Hello and thank you very much for joining me, Dabiwa. Hi, how are you? I'm all I'm all right. Now, Dabio, how did you learn of the passing of Oliver Mtukuti?
3: Well, um, we learned of uh, Tukuti's passing away this afternoon. Um, we were told that he passed on at as a news clinic um, in the afternoon. And uh, it was quite some sad news uh, because Tuku is a legend. And uh, uh, we follow uh, tributes pouring in on our social media and online platforms, uh, people speaking about uh, the great loss that Zimbabwe has had and Africa and the world in general.
1: Mm. Um, how long had he been in hospital for?
3: Uh Kui has been in hospital, um, I understand for about a month now. We believe that uh, during even during the festive season, it is not world uh, uh, any shows and uh, we actually wrote a story about how his family held a private event uh, to just cheer him up during the festive season uh he, had, he has also had a long um battle with diabetes which he has publicized uh, over the years
1: mm. um and you mentioned that some people are sharing their condolences on social media but how are zimbabweans celebrating his life
3: um Understandably, on social media, you would find that they are talking about uh, how his music spoke to the social uh, issues that were going on in Zimbabwe, how he shaped um, the the music by actually helping uplifting young musicians. They are sharing his videos, they are uh, sharing quotes from his songs. Some are sharing experiences that they have had with him because, as you know, Tuku was that kind of a person who was, as much as he was a legend, he was reachable and you would find that all over social media where people even sharing pictures of themselves with the legend, their memories of the shows that he held, how probably he contributed to their lives personally uh, through his music.
1: Mm. Um, and uh, tell us about uh, his music You mentioned that um, he mostly spoke of the social problems in Zimbabwe There's Neria in the background that we're listening to at the moment um, uh, Tell us about his music
3: uh, Just like you're saying Neria uh, This song was done uh, during the time when inheritance was a problem When the wife of the deceased would not be able to get the inheritance from her husband's savings. So as you see, Tuku was Tuku's music was so much deep into um, our culture and deep into the issues that affect us daily, from child marriages to issues to do with uh, family issues to do with um, even our society politically uh, and how economically as well. And I'm sure you understand that uh, at some point he was he sang a song for UN at 50 and it was also about the war that was going on in Africa. So you find out that Tuku's music spoke about a lot of issues that touched us, not only as Zimbabweans but as Africans and uh, the world in general.
1: He mostly sang in the Zimbabwean Shona language. What do you think made his music cross borders?
3: um as you know that uh, music is a universal language you would find that over the years Oliver of music um sort of uh beyond the original Mtukudzi that started it uh, evolved you would find the elements of um uh, at some point some jazz that is common across africa yet it had elements of some batanga at some point to could try to blend and also you'd find that he had a lot of joys with many musicians across Africa, which also helped um, him in terms of uh, being recognized internationally and uh, in Africa. And that music is also an inheritance that he's probably leaving for the rest of Africa and the duets that he did with all the musicians.
1: Mm. Um, have you had a chance to speak to the family? Have they issued a statement? How are they getting on at this point?
3: So far, we have not been able to get an official statement for the, from the family. But uh, we have been to the avenue's Clinic. And uh, so far, there is not uh, an official uh, statement that has been issued. But I'm pretty sure you understand that uh, in this instance, uh, Tuku was a legend. A giant, and his passing on is not only people, his um, uh, close family, but the nation at large. uh, The big family that is mourning Tuku right now. If you go on social media, everything is talking about Tuku. If you go into the streets, I was driving from town uh, to here. I could hear people playing Tuku music in their cars. This is just how big his family is.
1: Mm, and, and the government of Zimbabwe, have they said anything about this legend's passing?
3: Uh, there has not been a statement yet from government. Uh, the state media, the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation, and the state-owned Herald newspaper has uh, written the story without um, uh, a statement from government as yet. But we hope that soon they will be able to speak about it.
1: Tapio Azevira, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome, my brother. All right, W. Azevir There is a a journalist with the Newsday newspaper in Harare in
3: Zimbabwe.
1: Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host change your game the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the african entrepreneurship ecosystem trevor mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey welcome to change your game trevor
3: thank you so much Um, it's an honor to be here
1: palesa mokubong who's a designer welcome palesa to change your game thank you your role at the fourth annual fashion
6: without Borders event i just know that i need to arrive and and do my part and do it really really
1: well 1745 central african time right here on africa digest on channel africa here's amanda machaka with your economic news
2: Thank you, Spumelele. Good evening. Zimbabwe's finance minister Mtuli Mube has painted an optimistic outlook for his country. This despite protests over fuel prices that human rights groups say have left at least a dozen people dead. Mube says in the next year he hopes to bring inflation under 10% from 42%. Find the money to cover debt payments of 1.2 billion U.S. dollars and introduce a new currency. Zimbabwe is facing its most serious economic crisis in a decade. Shortages of food, fuel, and foreign currency are testing the government of President Emmerson Mnangagwa, who was voted into power after the overthrow of Robert Mugabe in 2017. China says it has written off Cameroon's 78 million U.S. dollar debt. The move forms part of Chinese support to help ease economic hardship in the Central African country. The announcement was made late last week after a meeting between Cameroon's President Paul Bia and Yang Chi, special representative of the Chinese President Xi Jinping in Yaoundé. The said amount was due to be repaid in 2018 as part of the country's estimated $5.7 billion total debt burden. Cameroon, like most other African countries, continued to turn to China for loans to largely finance infrastructure projects. Analysts have raised issues about the non-sustainability of these loans. World leaders and top CEOs meet at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland this week to discuss how to steer policy amid worries of slow economic growth, damaging trade wars and Brexit. South Africa is using the forum to seek inputs on its strategy to boost the country's adoption in new technology. The theme of this year is World Economic Forum is Globalization 4.0, Shaping a Global Architecture in the Age of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. One of the problems facing South Africa is technological innovation that is outpacing skills development. Communications Minister Stella Benny Abrams says South Africa will host the Digital Economic Summit in March to develop a country's plan on the Fourth Industrial Revolution. We are liaising with the World Economic Forum 4IR for Center to say how do we make sure that we can tap on the resources, the experience that they have to build a small Silicon Valley as President Ramaphosa in South Africa. During the budget vote last year, we did, we did mention to South Africa that we will be training about one million young people to be data scientists. We term it as building a capable army for the fourth industrial revolution. The wine grape harvest for 2018 was the lowest yield in the past 13 years due to the worst drought in a century in South Africa's Western Cape province. Despite this, the value of wine exports increased by 4%. Wines of South Africa, the body that promotes the export of local wines internationally, says great strides are being made in increasing the volume of packaged wines being sold abroad. Only 40% are bottled, the rest are sold as bulk wine. Walser spokesperson Marina Kello says there is a drive to turn these figures around within the next six years.
9: Bulk wine, unfortunately, doesn't do a lot to promote brand South Africa, whereas a wine that is packaged and labelled within our country really promotes the quality offering that we have, whereas a bulk wine can be blended into anything. So uh, for us to promote packaged wine also helps with uh, the workforce uh, and it also controls the quality that leaves the country.
2: And finally, Italian supercar manufacturer Ferrari has claimed the title of the world's strongest brand according to the latest brand finance Global 500 2019 report launching today at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Ferrari's brand strength index score increased three points from 91.5 to 94.8 out of 100 over the past year, overtaking the likes of McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Lego and Disney. The iconic auto brand last held the title of the world's strongest in 2014. Now financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 361.51 Nigerian Naira, 10.33 Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan shilling and 90 cents, and at 11.89 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost 381 Brazilian real, 6625 Russian ruble, 7122 Indian rupee, 678 Chinese yuan, and 1388 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 88 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,285 and platinum at $791 per ounce, and the price of Brent crude oil is at $61.60 a barrel. That's all for now. Up next is our sports news with Neto Shamanin.
8: Thank you, Amanda, from the Sports Desk. A very good evening. Starting off with football news... Zimbabwe has provisionally been awarded the rights to host this year's edition of the Kasafa Men's Cup to be held in May, subject to getting a government guarantee. The 2019 edition of the regional tournament is set to take place from the 19th of May to the 1st of June and would be an opportunity for the Warriors, who are on the verge of qualifying for the Africa Cup of Nations, set for Egypt an opportunity to prepare for the Continental Championship, which begins on the 15th of June. A search for soccer star Emiliano Sala swept the seas between France and England today, more than 36 hours after the plane he was flying in disappeared. As a recording emerged of a fearful voice message he apparently sent from the aircraft, two planes scored an area northwest of the Channel Island of Alderney where he un- Unidentified debris was earlier spotted, but rescuers said chances of finding the Cardiff city-bound Salah or the pilot alive were fading fast. The 28-year-old Argentina-born forward was flying from the Nantes in West, in West France to Cardiff for his debut with his English Premiership League club, which he joined from FC Nantes last week for a club record fee of about 19 million U.S. dollars 12- having scored 12 goals for the French club this season. On to tennis news, Channel Simons, South Africa's highest-ranked women's tennis player, is looking forward at representing the nation at the upcoming Fed Cup Euro-Africa Zone Group 2 tournament. The tournament will take place from the 6th to the 9th of February in Luxembourg. Rene Plant, captain of the team, has chosen Simons, Madrid Leroux, Teresa Fanzel, Iman Hassim, Zani Panat and Sinazo Solani as the players to do duty for the nation. who has played in a number of Fed Cup ties throughout the year so feels the responsibility of having to lead the team.
7: I could I could talk to the girls and I could I could help them be more prepared just in the sense that that yes it's it's Fed Cup and it's it's more than just playing for yourself or playing for your for your college. You know, it's like you're playing for your country now and you must be proud to play for your country and, and you've been selected in, in this group to to represent. So um also i think because i've i've played as number one on the team for a few years i i do feel i have to somewhat lead the group and just and and make sure everyone is comfortable and everyone's prepared in in their own way and that we're all ready to support each other as a group and not not just see each other as individuals
8: South Africa gained a promotion into the Euro Africa Zone Group 2 of the Fed Cup competition last year after beating Malta 2-1 in their playoff final on a clay court in Montenegro in April. Simon says they want to win a couple of ties so that they remain in the group.
7: The very main goal is to stay in the group. because we, we got promoted from Group 3 last year. So this year we'll definitely be playing a lot stronger countries. And we'll be playing on indoor hard which isn't really what, what we used to because we don't have any indoor facilities in South Africa, so it will be a bit of a, a faster faster game, faster balls. So um, depending on our draw and what countries we get, we get um, I'm confident that we can win at least one match, but if we could win two matches, then that would guarantee that we stay in the group. But we just have to see who we draw and who we play against and just be as prepared as possible to, to try and win.
8: South Africa's number one wheelchair tennis player Hotadzo Monjani was defeated by Dutch world number three Anik van Goethe, 1-6-5-7 in the opening round of the Australian Open in Melbourne Park on Wednesday. The South African had hoped to get off to a better start in the tournament, but the 2013 Australian Open champion, who defeated Monjani at the Melbourne Open last week, continued her dominance over Monjani. And finally in cricket news, the ICC and the match officials from yesterday Today's second ODI between South Africa and Pakistan are investigating Safras Ahmed after his comments after the comments he made to Andile Petruguayo. That was the news from Cricket South Africa CSA Today, as social media continued to call for action to be taken against the Pakistani captain. The incident occurred on the 37th over of South Africa's round chase during the second ODI at Kingsmead in Deben, when Petruguayo got inside the edge of Shin Shah, a free delivery that narrowly missed the stumps With the third ODI at Centurion on Friday, Safrat is now in danger of facing suspension with the ICC investigating the incident. The match referee yesterday was Sri Lanka's Ranjan Mandugale. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. Stay tuned for programming news and sport from an African perspective.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: Let's recap parts of stories. Islamic extremism, tribal conflicts and political instability have come to increasingly define Mali. Renowned Zimbabwean musician Oliver Mduguti has died. With that, we wrap up Africa Digest for today. From myself, pumele Zondi, producer luanda maome technical producers for summa and the rest of the team thanks for listening it's info on channel i've af- at channelafrica.co.za info at channelafrica.co.za on email on whatsapp it's plus two seven seven six three hundred three three two seven tweet us on channel africa one we leave you with wasakara by oliver mtukuti